be, and oftentimes at the beginning of something, whether it's life, whether it's an academic career, whether it's a job, whether it's a new business, whatever it is, you have to establish your foundation in the beginning and set goals and set values of what we're going to be. And so that's what we've been doing uh, over the course of the last few weeks. We've been trying to do that in the beginning of our time together is to reinforce and reiterate what our values are and who we, who we hope to be and accomplish as God leads us. And so then, for the last few weeks, we've talked about some of those. Uh, so far, we've covered four of the six. We've got six, and so the day will be on the fifth one. But so far, we've talked about our value that says we believe that worship is a lifestyle. We've done that. We then talked about how we love God by loving his people. And then from there, we talked about we believe that God's word is essential. And then last week, we talked about we are committed to going and doing. And I told you that I added a word to that last week, the doing, because we can't just go. When we go, we've got to go and do something. And so today, then, we're on our fifth value, and that value I've also added a word to. Uh, and so that value, we've, we've been saying that we give generously. But today I'm adding the word, a word to that value, and I'm saying that not only do we give generously, but we must live generously. And if any of you have already been part of Bethel or you've looked at Bethel, or not if you're new, and you've looked at the website, you'll notice that that's part of Bethel's core values as well, is that we live generously. So we're going to talk about that today, giving and living generously. Now, before I go another further. So I got to get y'all loosened up. Y'all are way too tight for me. I may just start coming in here, Kevin, and telling jokes. Some Jesus jokes. Now, I'm not a comedian. I'm not, no, no. But before I go any further, let me offer this disclaimer, because I know when I talk about, we're going to talk about giving and living generously, some of you in your minds have checked out already, because you think this is going to be a sermon on tithing. And when the preacher preaches about tithing, people just check out. (laughs) Let me say, this is not a sermon about tithing. So you can relax, smile a little bit, loosen up a little bit. (laughs) It's not going to be that uncomfortable. So this is not, I want to make sure you stay with me. So I need to offer that disclaimer. So then, may I ask you then to join me in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 27. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 27. And I'm going to read 27 through 38. Luke chapter 6, 27 through 38. And the word of God reads this way starting at verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your, your reward will be great and you will be, be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, uh, it will be measured back to you. We're going to use that as our theme or our scripture today as we talk about living and giving, or giving and living generously. Uh, so what I've just read to you is an excerpt from Luke's shorter version of the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. There's an extended version of this, and I've read to you an excerpt from Luke's version of that. Uh, Matthew's version is much longer than Luke's. Uh, it's a lot longer, but there are some notable consistencies in both of them. Both of them start with the Beatitudes, and both of them end with the very same parables. So there are some consistencies, but Matthew's is a lot longer. Luke's version is considerably shorter, partly because Luke doesn't include the intricacies of the Jewish law as Matthew does. It's likely that Luke is a Gentile, and it's likely that Luke writes primarily to other Gentiles with a focus on presenting Christ as the Son of Man who had been rejected by Israel but offers salvation to everybody. This is Luke's approach as he talks about Jesus and so here in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, what we get is a record of the first lesson that Jesus teaches to the 12 newly selected apostles. Go back in chapter 6, you'll find out that just previous to the, prior to the passage I read for you, Jesus selects his 12 uh, special, the 12 special people from the group the larger group of disciples, he selects 12 to be not just disciples, but apostles, to be his close followers, the one who would carry his message, that would carry his word to a lost world that needs to hear it, that needed to hear it. So then he has just done that. Uh, and after doing that, he teaches the first lesson to them. Uh, and so then what we find here is uh, description or uh, Luke's account of this first lesson. Uh, and so what Jesus actually does in this first lesson is he describes the anatomy of a generous, gracious life. That's what he does. Essentially, in the passage, in the excerpt that I read for you, he describes for us what a generous or a gracious life looks like. And that, remember, that's what we're talking about today is living and giving generously. I believe Jesus is going to help us understand what that life looks like. Uh, I want to share with you that grace and generosity 
are actually quite synonymous. They actually have a lot of similar, the definitions of those two words have a lot of similarities. Grace and generosity. Grace is defined, as you know, as God's unmerited favor, right? God, that's the popular definition that we like to use when we're talking about Christian grace, a godly grace, that, that it is God's unmerited favor. Or you can also say it is uh, giving without any regard for whether the receiver or the recipient deserves it or not. Giving without any regard as to whether or not the recipient deserves what you're giving. Sometimes we fall on the other side of that and we try to determine whether or not we're going to give based on someone's uh, if, whether or not they deserve what we plan to give them. God doesn't operate that way. God is a God of grace. And watch this before you say amen too loud. He calls us to be the same as he is, to be people of generosity and grace. So then let's look at the definition of generosity and see if we can find out the reason why I say they are somewhat similar and almost synonymous. Generosity then is defined as being liberal in giving, being a noble person. It means having freedom from meanness. I heard you, you said, mm, because some of y'all's toes got stepped on. Freedom from meanness or smallness of mind or character. Generosity. Generosity is to be big-hearted, to be bountiful, to be charitable, to be free-handed, to be free-hearted, to be open-handed, unselfish, and unsparing. That's what God calls us to be because he is a God of grace and a God of generosity. He, he calls us to be the same. So Jesus, in this passage, gives us uh, the anatomy of what that person looks like, the description of how that life uh, looks. What, what does that life look like? A person that lives this generous uh, and gracious life. And so the first thing Jesus teaches about a generous, gracious life is in order to achieve and maintain it, one must, here it is, beware of conventional wisdom. In order to achieve this kind of life, you have to beware of conventional thinking, conventional wisdom. Uh, so then let, allow me to share with you a definition that I came up with and found of what conventional wisdom is. Conventional wisdom is defined as the generally accepted belief or opinion about a particular matter. Key words in that definition are generally accepted, which means that somebody has determined that that's what we ought to believe about something. So the question is, how are these beliefs and opinions formed? Where, where do we get conventional wisdom from? Where, where does it come from? What, where do we get these things that kind of direct and order our steps and our lives oftentimes if we're not careful? Uh, Edward L. Bernays has a rather interesting contention concerning this question. Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He was a master manipulator. In fact, he was known as the father of spin. 
He dominated the public relations industry from the 1920s to the 1960s. He was an expert in the science of mass persuasion. He wrote a book in his book he writes called Propaganda. He has a line that I believe fits and is appropriate for our discussion. In his book, Propaganda, Bernays contends that we are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. Most of us know the power of suggestion and persuasion. It happens when you turn on the boob tube. Your mind is being manipulated, and you didn't even have an appetite for McDonald's. They put them fries up there. <laughs> and all of you don't eat meat fries, right? But they look so good. And so you make your way. It, it, it's, it, it's persuasion. It's manipulation. And Bernays says that it comes from uh, uh, th this whole idea, this whole concept comes from people, Edward, that we don't even know. Uh, they persuade and manipulate. Uh, so generally accepted beliefs and opinions can be the enemy of greatness. If you fall victim to that, you can rob yourself of what God wants you to be and all that God has planned for you every now and then, it's a good idea to think and to operate outside the box. Every now and then. It's good to make a departure from conventional wisdom. Every now and then, it's good to uh, uh, escape this box that has been created for you by somebody else. Sometimes you've got to do something that makes no sense to anybody but you and God. And watch this, watch this, sometimes it makes no sense even to you. Anybody ever been there? Where God has asked you or called you or shown you something and you said, God, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, I can relate. Multi-ethnic ministry in North Tower. You've got to be kidding me. Me? Do you know that what we're doing is so unique that oftentimes uh, when we see something like this happen, it don't happen like this. It doesn't look like that. So I said, God, God, you've got to be kidding. So let me say this. If you've never done anything where you have been perceived to be or even called crazy, you've never done anything. I know you think you've done a lot. I know you have credentials. I know you have a resume. I know you have a great background. I know you've had great successes in your But if nobody has ever looked at what you've said that you're going to do, David said, you've got, you have got to have lost your ever-loving mind. How do you think that something like this would ever work? If you've never done that, if you've never been there, if you've never been a Kevin East that says, we're going to bring ministry and we're going to turn the Boys and Girls Club into a Christ-based, faith-based ministry when it's never happened anywhere in the United States or in the world. And people say, you've got to be crazy. But God said, and if you have never done, and I'm just challenging you right now. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of staying right here. i got a long way to go, but i got to stick right here for a minute because I want you to see that if you have never thought to yourself, God, this is absolutely insane. 
People are looking at me like I'm crazy. People are talking about me. They're talking about us, Chris. What are y'all doing? Right? They're talking about, they're talk- if you've never been there, you, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, you've never done anything. Because God is going to always attempt to stretch you, to expand your thoughts, and to broaden your horizons. And if you've never been there, you've never done anything. Uh, We must be careful not to become victims of conventional conditioning. Conventional conditioning constrains and restricts. It it constrains and restricts us to a box that has been constructed by somebody else. And or it elicits a predetermined response even if it's not based on fact. I'm reminded of how elephants are trained. I'm going to remind how they are trained to not escape from the circus. You ever seen it? Elephants are restrained by what is a relatively small chain around their ankle connected to a stake in the ground. Big, giant, massive, strong elephant won't escape because this little chain on their ankle connected to a stake in the ground. You you ever wonder how that happens? An elephant could run through here and destroy this whole building. An elephant can tear a tree from its roots, a, a tree that's been around for thousands of years. An elephant, if it decided to, could rip that tree from its roots. But why does this elephant, this same massive elephant, remain chained by its ankle? Well, it's because when the elephant was a baby, the ones who, who were training the elephant put a rope around its ankle and tied it to a tree or a stake. And because the elephant, because of its lack of strength due to its age, fought and fought and fought as it was young but couldn't get itself free from the rope, it decided that when it became older and had the strength that there was no need to fight because I've been conditioned to believe that I have to remain constrained and restricted even though my strength says and my abilities say I can break away from this thing. And God says, don't allow yourself to be conditioned that way. Don't allow yourself. So Jesus says, beware of conventional wisdom that will confine and constrict. So Jesus' teachings in Luke chapter 6 are extremely, I know you've been wondering, okay, where is he going with this? I know, I can see it in your eyes. I can see it. I heard a couple people say, I see where you're going, but the rest of y'all were like, where in the world is he going with this? I wish he would hear up. Well, here's where I'm going. Jesus' teachings in this passage, if you didn't notice when we read it, some of you did because I could hear your responses out there like, oh, pray, amen, pray. I could hear you. Saying, Jesus' teachings in this passage are extremely unconventional. And Jesus says, if you want to achieve this generous, gracious life, you're going to have to submit yourselves to some things that are not necessarily normal. 
So, for instance, he says in, in verses 27 through 29, he says this. He says, love your enemies. Now, that sounds strange to you. <laughs> I know it does. It sounds strange to us today in the 21st century. Imagine how it sounds to a group of folks who had been raised to not understand that concept. This was certainly a radical commandment and a drastic departure from their conventional thought process. They had been conditioned to think otherwise. There was, by the way, no precedent for such teaching in the Old Testament. Never been taught before. They, they hadn't been raised this way. Love your enemies. Are you kidding me? No precedent for this. Uh, in fact, uh, they believed, as Matthew points out in his version of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, they believed that one should love uh, thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. That's what they thought. They thought, and they, as they thought that they recalled the passage, passages like Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, where it says uh, there was a prohibition against mingling with the Ammonites and the Moabites. They remember that as their standard, as, as their model for living. Don't mingle with folks that are enemies of ours. But if you were to read the story of Ruth, you realize that the story of Ruth proves that that prohibition was not a blanket prohibition. It was not an everlasting prohibition. There was cases where everybody was welcome. Ruth says to Naomi, your people will be my people. And God accepts her into the family and into the fold. Ruth was a Moabitess. But they think about things like that. Uh, and Jesus says, you've got to do away with this thinking that says that you only love your neighbor and you hate your enemies. He says, no, love your enemies. This was radical to them. And Jesus says to them, I'm calling you not to mediocrity, but to greatness. I'm calling you to greatness uh, for the glory of God. And in order to achieve it, he says, you'll have to abandon the box. So how is it done? How is this put into place? What are the practical steps to loving your enemy? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus shares them with us. Uh, he said, in verse 28, he says this. He says, do good to those who hate you. That's how you do it. He says this. He says, bless those who curse you. He says, pray for those who abuse you. He says, turn the other cheek when somebody socks you. I mean, that's the literal translation. It's not just a slap. It's a sock. It's an actual punch, right? Is anybody in here that thinks that you would be able to do that. If I walked up to you right now, let me pick somebody. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I got to lighten you up. You're a little bit too tight. Is there anybody, if I did say, I'm, I'm, no, Dave, you're too big. I ain't going to, no. I looked at Dave. I had a second thought. If I did that to any of you, would, would your first reaction be when I punched you with everything I had to be to turn the other side and say, come on, bring it on, Right? That's not a natural response. Jesus says, if somebody does that to you, I'm calling you to think outside of the norm and not respond with violence. Don't meet violence with violence, but turn the other cheek. Because I'm calling you to be unconventional. He says, do that. Turn it. This is radical and counterintuitive for sure for them. 
Uh, he says, watch this, he says the other way that you can do it, not just that. He says, give to everybody in verse 30. That's radical. Give to everybody. Uh, ESV says that begs. King James says everybody that asks of you. Now, let me use that same, let me ask that same question that I asked about punching. I'm going to flip it and say, if I walked up to you and asked you for $100, uh-oh, that's one hand. I thought a hand went up. Oh, <laughs> I was getting ready to jump down from here. <laughs> How many of you would say, without any question, just say, here. Jesus says, think of it that way. Just give. Don't worry about it. He says, give not to only certain, because their thought was, is that we will give, but we will give to only a certain group of people. Some don't deserve our generosity. Jesus says, no, give to everybody. Look, wealth, possessions, treasures, time, talent, gifts must be viewed in light of eternity and freely given to everybody, starting with God. Everything you have belongs to God. Is that right? I said, is that right? Oh, I'm just trying to see if anybody's here. Everything you have. So some think, you know, my stuff is my stuff. I earned this. I worked for this. I, it belongs to me. But I beg to differ with that because I have scripture on my side. Psalms 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For it's founded upon the seas and established it upon the floods. It means that everything belongs to him anyhow. I know that's not proper English, but I have to throw some of that in every now and then. Amen. Right? Everything belongs to him anyhow. So we have to view Everything, our gifts, our talents, our possessions, our treasures, and light of eternity. Because I heard somebody say it this way a long time ago that only, somebody help me, what you do for Christ will last. Nobody's ever seen a U-Haul. Y'all finish that for me. Fall in a hearse. <laughs> only what you do for Christ will last. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul shares words from Christ that are not recorded anywhere else in the Gospels or any, anywhere else if, are they recorded about Christ. He shares these words in Acts chapter 20, 35, in, in verse chapter 20, verse 35, when he is sharing with and reminding the Ephesian elders about Christ. He says this, he says, Christ said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He shares everything. And so so uh, this is Jesus' idea, God's idea of how we ought to live, right? A generous life, a life uh, of grace. He didn't just talk the talk. He actually walked the walk. Because this concept, Yvette, is modeled for us in that verse that all of us learned as children in Sunday school growing up, John 3.16. Y'all can quote it for me, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten son, his only son, that whosoever would be, he gave out of his love, out of his grace, out of his generosity, he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting. He models this concept. He doesn't just talk to talk and tell us to do it. He shows us how to do it. Uh, we, have, we have to be careful not to become afflicted by cirrhosis of the giver. 
Y'all thought I was going to say liver. It's a disease that affects the hand, right? And it keeps the hand from going in the pocket. For some reason, if you, you have to be careful not to be affected by that because it keeps, some, some reason, it's only visible in places like this. You don't see, so people that claim to have this disease uh, that's visible only in places, you don't see that visible in places like the mall. Some, some, somehow there's an instant cure to this disease, cirrhosis of the giver. All of a sudden, the hand starts working again. You don't see this disease visible in places like the lottery line at the gas station. Y'all, somebody should have said amen right there. Because all of us have stood in line behind some of y'all. Give me a number 10, I want a number 15, I want, and, and all of a sudden, that disease that you had on Sunday morning while you were in God's house disappears in the lottery line. It doesn't, it doesn't show itself at the boat. Uh-oh. Say something. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just stepping on for, it don't show up at the boat. You, I'm not talking about Lake Palestine. I'm talking about, y'all know what boat I'm talking about. It don't show up there. You know what? I had to go to Dallas yesterday, and I stopped at a place that this disease is not heard of, Bucky's. <laughs> it's a madhouse in that place. You think they were giving away money or something in there. Thousands of people just, just buying stuff. Same folks. If somebody says, can you help me? Can you spare a dollar or a dime? I'm down on my luck. And you start questioning. Now, I'm not telling you to be unwise and just give without any regard. But sometimes it's a good idea to do that. You know, sometimes I, I, I encounter a beggar and I give them something. I don't even care. I, I know they may be going to... There's kids in here, so I better be careful. I know... But you know what? I, I, I consider that. Now, I don't do that every time. But sometimes I just say, I'm giving it. I don't care. Uh, God's going to deal with that. My responsibility at this moment, at this moment in time, is just to give. And I just pray that something good would come of it, even if they do take it to that place that will remain nameless. Right? So he says, do that. He says, go above and beyond in verses 32 through 34. He challenges us, if we're going to be generous, if we're going to be gracious, you've got to go above and beyond what you think is normal. Watch what he says in 32 through 34. He says this. He says, uh, if you love those who love you, what does that mean? It's easy to do that. It's easy to love folks that love you back. The challenge, the difficulty is in loving people that don't love you. If you do good to those who do good to you, <laughs> that's nothing to brag about. Do good to somebody who does not do good to you. Jesus says the challenge is to go above and beyond. If you lend to those hoping and expecting to get something back, where's the challenge in that? Some of us have gotten in trouble with that. <laughs> then he says in 36, be merciful. It's radical. Be, you know, mercy, if, if, if grace is God's unmerited favor of giving somebody uh, what they don't deserve, 
then mercy is not giving them what they do deserve. And in 36, he says, be merciful to people. It's radical, isn't it? 37, he says, judge not, that's radical. Condemn not, that's radical. And forgive, that's radical. For them it was, and even for us, sometimes it seems like a radical suggestion or commandment, right? We, we don't have oftentimes any concept of forgiveness. Here's a quote that I found. It says, do everything with a good heart and expect nothing in return, and you will never be disappointed. So Jesus teaches here that in order to achieve and maintain a, a gracious and generous life, one must beware of conventional wisdom. Then, lastly, in verse 38, he shares with us this thing. He teaches us this. Generosity always produces favorable results. Generosity always produces favorable results. Trust in and obedience to God always produces favorable results, even when initially it may not look good. If we do that, he will always give us a way, even when there seems to be no way, even when there seems, when it seems like all hope is lost. Now, I told you last week, y'all always like me to close with a story. And last week I said I was closing with scripture. And for some of y'all, y'all just happy that I'm closing, period. I understand. <laughs> but I did, the good news is I am closing, Brent. I am, I'm there. I'm there. So let's do this. Last week it was scripture. How about a story today? I'm reminded of a young man. Can I come down here where you are? Who goes to the National Museum of Art. And he notices a painting on the wall that arrested his attention. He stands there for an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours passes. He's standing there staring at this painting. Here's the painting. The painting is entitled Checkmate. On the painting, there's a chessboard with chess pieces on it. On one side of the table, I'm dealing with this beam. I'm going to come down here because I need you to see me so you can hear what I'm saying. On one side of the table is a young man with a rather pathetic and pitiful look on his face. On the other side of the table is the menacing, sinister glare of Satan himself with fingers crossed looking into the eyes of the young man. And the painting is entitled Checkmate. The guard in the museum keeps coming by, wondering why in the name of God is this young man standing here just staring at this painting. He comes to the young man. He says, in a couple of hours, we're closing. Just want to let you know. So he goes about his way. Young man continues to stand there staring at the painting. About five minutes before the gallery closes, the guard comes around the corner and hears the young man yell out, it's a lie. What do you mean it's a lie? The guard comes up to him and says, what do you mean it's a lie? John, he says that to him. He says, what do you mean it's a lie? He says, well, I play chess, and I've been standing here looking at this chessboard, looking at this painting, looking at all of these bishops and these rooks, and I've discovered as I've studied it that it's a lie. It's not checkmate. He's got one more move. Y'all missed that. That was the punchline. Anytime, here, 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 if you got to tell people where, when the punchline, that means you didn't do a good job. <laughs> He's got 
one more move. And all I'm trying to say is that obedience to God, a generous, gracious life, will always afford you, even when it looks like all hope is lost, it will always afford you one more move. Now you're getting it. There's evidence of it. There's evidence. Jesus on the cross. It didn't look good. But because Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, God the Father looks down on him on Good Friday when it didn't look good and gave Jesus one more move. We extend now the invitation. Uh, That's the end. Y'all can relax. I don't have any more stories. I've exceeded my limit, my time. We extend the invitation now. If there be someone here that would like to give your heart to Jesus Christ, we don't want you to leave here today without having the opportunity to do that. So as the music plays, you're invited to come forth. And if you decide to come forth for the very first time and offer your heart and your life to Jesus, we're going to gather some brothers and we're going to pray with you. Tell you what this Jesus is all about. How forgiving he is, how loving he is, how gracious he is, how merciful he is. It means that nothing you've done is too bad for him. He's able to wash away your sins and make them as white as snow. Though they be crimson, he'll make them white as snow. Would you come?